Well, welcome this morning. My name is Robert Cavolo, and uh, you know, I we had this little video. We had these little video prompts that kind of get us into the theme. And I did. Uh, I didn't have Siri with me, so I asked Siri. I asked Alexa, "Does God see me?" And she said, "I don't know that," which was very disturbing for me because I kind of thought Alexa and I were like both believers and we both had a strong faith. But it turns out that she believes in a closed universe. Um, you know, Alexa's answer is actually quite common uh, in the modern Western culture sentiment uh, when it comes to God and when it comes to faith. You know, God is seen as something that, who may or may not exist. He may or may not hear us. He may or may not be there. Who knows? Who really cares after all? There's so many other good things to do on Alexa um, and that you can ask. Uh, and so we've been in a series to really take this whole issue of faith serious. And we've been looking at the life of Abraham as found in the book of Genesis. And God promises Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to use those words, by the way, Abraham and Sarah. I know in the text day it's uh, it's Abram and Sarai. Next chapter, they're going to get renamed, but I'm going to be just goofed up if I try to go back and forth. So it's going to be Abraham and Sarah today. So God tells Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have a son. And this son is going to then be part of a family, and then from that family will come a nation, and then from that seed will eventually come the hero who is going to rescue this broken and uh, needy world. And so in Genesis chapter 16, we see the story continue on. And in this story today, as it continues on, uh, we move from Abraham to focus on two women, Sarah and Sarah's Egyptian servant, Hagar. And so this morning, we are going to look at uh, the story of these two women as found in Genesis chapter 16, and it's going to come to us in five scenes. So there's five scenes in the story. We're going to walk through the story this morning and draw some conclusions. In the first three scenes, in verses 1 to 6, the focus is Sarah. Uh, And yeah, Sarah is really in a seriously difficult situation, and the first three scenes are really a downward spiral. And then starting in the fourth scene, verse 7, this focus shifts to Hagar and and this mysterious character, and we see that the story turns around. And so if we could really summarize these three scenes, in one to three, the basic message is, is that unbelief has a certain kind of disturbing downward cycle or uh, downward trajectory. And then in verses four to five, it shifts to uh, this, the idea that, uh, that faith has this transformative power. And, and the basic thesis of this text is that belief in God, belief in God, actually belief in the God who sees you, that there's a God that, that, that God sees you, can be absolutely transformative. So let's begin. The story begins with a problem, as all good stories do, Right? And what's the problem? The problem can be found right off the bat. It says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. There's no son. So God gave this promise that they were going to have this son, that this was the beginning of God's great redemptive act, and yet they've been in Canaan for 10 years now, and there's no son. And Sarah is 75, and she's probably already experienced uh, menopause, and Abraham knows he's not getting any younger and they're sitting there, and there's no son. So this is a problem for Abraham, because Abraham wants to have a son. What? Dad doesn't want to have a son, but he also wants to see the problems fulfilled. And so it is a problem for Abraham, but it is double the pain for Sarah. 
And, and, and why is that? Well, Sarah has a lot of things going for her. We found out in a previous story that Sarah is incredibly beautiful. She goes, and, and, and Abraham knows people are going to talk about her beauty. I mean, I do not know a lot of women where it's like uh, people t- report back, like, this woman is so crazy gorgeous. So Sarah is a beautiful woman. She is getting older. But the thing is, is that within Sarah's culture, the real capital you have as a woman is you can bear children. See, in the ancient Near East, in the culture that they're in, the whole thing is about, for women, their job, full stop, is just simply this. You need to bear children and build a family. And the fact that she has not bore any children is an incredibly devastating thing for Sarah. It's really hard for us to imagine, but she's incredibly devastating. She's in tremendous pain and despair, and we see her in the text like this. And before we go any further, I just want to pause and have an aside. Because when we read these things in the Bible, sometimes we think to ourselves, like, this is horrible. I can't imagine that this culture was like that. It's so, so horrible. I mean, can you imagine living in a culture where, where all these expectations are put on you and you're nothing without children? The word barren is in there, right? She's barren. Um, and I'm not going to defend the world uh, that, uh, that used to treat women like this in the past. And the Bible doesn't either. Uh, But I want to say this. It's naive to think that because we're living in a modern culture like this, we we don't have our own kind of forms of barrenness, where whatever the culture is saying you need in order to be significant um, don't exist. Those things still exist. And we can think like, oh, you know, back then it was horrible. You know, today you can be whoever you want. You can marry whoever you want. But can you really marry whoever you want? You can marry whoever you can attract, Right? And, and, and if you don't check the boxes, you know, if you don't have the education and the looks and, you know, and the money and, and the personality, right, you're in trouble. And so uh, this, this idea of barrenness is really a judgment that a culture puts on a person who's not able to meet the expectations and ideals of that culture. And Sarah is experiencing the full weight of that judgment in this text. And, uh, and, and so here's Sarah, and she knows that she's gone through menopause. And, and then she says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is verse 2. There's Bibles in the pews, by the way, if you want to pull a Bible out. Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, this is a very spiritual thing to say. And on the surface level, this sounds exactly like the kind of thing you should say. From the Old Testament perspective, God is the ultimate source behind all of life's experiences And this is the right thing to say. But we need to remember that behind these words, there is a world of pain for Sarah. We don't hear the anguish that she has. We don't hear the cynicism later on when she hears in in chapter 18 the promise of God herself that she's going to bear a child. She laughs cynically. And then she gets called out by the angel. That'll be fun. Josh will preach on that one, I'm guessing. Um, Yeah, and so you can hear that within her heart, even though she has the right Bible answer, she says the spiritual answer at church, there's a lot going on for her. God has never appeared to Sarah up to this point. Yeah, he's appeared to Abraham, and I wonder what she was thinking. You know, maybe you wives maybe wonder that too. Like, you know, he's he's reporting all this stuff, and maybe sometimes she's believing him. Maybe sometimes she thinks he's crazy. Uh, You know, but she has never had God speak to her directly. And... um, But there's something going on here. When she says, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she is making a judgment. 
It's a judgment about what's going to happen. And it's a judgment, basically, that her womb is closed and it's done and she's ready to move on. So she uses this kind of spiritual statement, but in reality, what's happening is very subtle. She's taking a certain kind of initiative that, that the promise of God didn't say. You know, there's another story in 1 Samuel where Hannah is barren. And we see Hannah going crazy and pouring herself out to God. She goes into the temple such that people think she's drunk. She's just, she, but she doesn't move beyond what God has said. We see David. David is at certain times where he could kill Saul. And he says, who am I to serve God's place? I can't kill the Lord's anointed. So there's a very slight thing where she's just done and she's going to move on. And she can because she has a plan. She has a plan. You know, as a result of Abraham's little uh, episode where he lied about his wife, remember that, and said, oh, she's my sister? Uh, he acquired servants. He acquired Egyptian servants. And, and probably Hagar is one of those servants that he acquired. And he gives Hagar to Sarah as her maidservant. That meant that she was her personal kind of maidservant to Sarah. And, uh, and so this is what Sarah says. To, to Abraham, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this isn't her own invention. This was a universal practice back then. Matter of fact, it lasted for over a thousand years. We have all kinds of code, law codes that talk about this is something a woman can do who has a maidservant. Uh, this was common. It was legal. It was socially acceptable. Sarah was the matriarch. Abraham's the patriarch, and the idea was the matriarch, if she can't bear children, can take one of her servants, and she can have, get, give her servant to the patriarch, and then that child becomes her, it's hers. And so, uh, basically, what this is is a form of kind of surrogate motherhood, um, and she would ultimately have control of the child. By the way, we won't get into it, but the codes are really interesting because they sense that there's going to be a tension, so it's like, well, what if the, what if the servant acts out? It's like, well, there's different options in these different kinds, like within the, uh, you know, Assyrian code, it's a little different, you know, than the Babylonian code, different than this code, but they all recognize this probably, this might not go well, okay? And they had certain things you could do. You can cast her out if you want. You can put a mark on her to remind her she's a slave. Well, lo and behold, they start mirroring the culture, Abraham, Sarah, absorbing the logic of their culture rather than bringing God's logic to the culture in the equation. And rather than showing a different way, they simply mirror it and things go bad, right? It, it's not rocket science. Like, you know, suddenly, I mean, come on, let's just think about this. It's not rocket science that this is not going to go well. Um, but it goes bad. I mean, in fact, actually, there's something else going on here. You know, the pattern in Genesis is one man and one woman. So polygamy is not something that the Bible endorses. And in fact, whenever you see polygamy starting to happen, even though it was rampant in the broader culture, uh, it always goes poorly in the Bible right? It's always, it always is the beginning of something that is going to go amiss. The very first person who practices it, by the way, is Cain's great, 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 three greats, I had to count them, grandson, Lamech, in chapter four. He's the first person that breaks God's code. And why is polygamy bad? Because it's absolutely destructive to women. So this, does, this plan uh, doesn't go well. In fact, there are signs in the text that it's a bad idea, uh, when it says, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her over to Abraham, her husband, as a wife, that gave, Sarah gave her over. Those are the exact same words uh, that we heard in the, in the last story where Abraham gave Sarah over to Pharaoh. And so there's this interesting echo that's ominous. Abraham gave Sarah to Pharaoh. 
Now Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham. So there's these kind of webs we weave, right, that's taking place here. Well, what's the result? We already saw it's, it's, it's not going to go well. Well, actually, at first, it seems to be going really well. Uh, ironically, uh, Hagar just gets pregnant right away, okay? And so this seems like the plan is going to work. But then things get complex, deeply complex, very, very problematic. Uh, it says, uh, and when Abraham went into Hagar, verse 4, she conceived. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. She looked with contempt on her mistress. What does this mean? The Hebrew is literally, she saw her mistress as small. In other words, she started looking down on Sarah. Hagar got puffed up. She, start, she no longer showed respect to Sarah. She began acting as Sarah's equal or her better. And, you know, we can imagine what this might look like. Different cultures have different ways in which you show honor towards somebody who's above you. Uh, you know, in some cultures, you don't look somebody who's above you in the eye. You know, you keep down. Or um, in Spanish, I, uh, you know, there's the formal. And when you meet somebody who's older than you, you slip into the formal. Or somebody who's more important, you slip into the formal use of the language. We don't know exactly all the ways this happened, but it was happening. And it was driving Sarah bonkers. And, uh, and so she is feeling it. And uh, in fact, Proverbs actually talks about this in Proverbs 31. It says, under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. And what is the fourth one? A maid when she succeeds her mistress. So Sarah is furious. Sarah is absolutely furious. Uh, she tried to solve her problem of feeling contempt from her culture, and now she's receiving contempt from Hagar. It went from bad to worse. And she is in despair and, uh, you know, she, I mean, here she is. She acted in despair, and her despair got worse. And she had no way of anticipating this tension, even though part of you thinks, like, how did you not? And so Sarah flies into where Abraham's at and says, listen here. May the wrong done to me be on you. In other words, this is your fault, Abraham. This is your fault. I'm furious, and I have a right to be. Well, is it his fault? Eh, kind of. You know, we'll see his fault in just a second. But the, clearly she's de in denial at some level by pinning it all on Abraham, right? There's clearly something going on there. Uh, and, and, and in a certain sense, I think Abraham might kind of feel like, you kind of laid a trap for me, lady. You know, it's like your wife's leaving. She says, oh, take the day off, relax. And she, she comes back and you're like watching TV with your feet up. Oh, just sitting around all day. Is that what we're doing? You know, like, I'm doing what you said, lady. You know, so... Um, you know, uh, but the reality is, is that there's a lot going on here for Sarah, a lot going on. And it's not just sociological. It's not just the cultural cues and the pushback from Hagar. And we know that because she goes on, she says, I gave you my servant to embrace. Literally in the Hebrew, it is, I put this woman in your lap. I put this woman between your legs. See, it's gritty. It's graphic. The Hebrew is not as polite as the English. And why is it? Because it, we don't hear her raw emotion. You know, this is not going well for her. And we don't know the different looks that Hagar had with Abraham or when she began flirting very subtly. We don't know. We just know that Sarah is about to erupt like a volcano and that behind her mask of righteous condemnation of Abraham resides deep wounds, 
incredible pain. And she, and she is just absolutely beside herself. So Hagar gets competitive. Sarah becomes furious. What does Abraham do as a result of this? Well, Abraham plays stupid. Look what it says. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from here. Abraham here displays a false neutrality. He says, she's not my employee. She's yours. Do whatever you want. It's not my problem. But then he renders a subtle judgment. Do with her as you please. That, that expression, do with her as you please, actually was what Pharaoh did to the people of Israel. And what did he do? He beat them. And what does Sarah do? She beats her. This is an ugly, these, you know, these are the great, you know, fathers of our faith, the father and mother of our faith, right? You know, if you, if your imagination of Christianity is that it's this book of all these virtuous people, and we just try to copy them, and if we just try to, if we get like them enough, God will like us, like, you're going to be sorely disappointed, because all the great heroes of the faith are people that are broken, people that are easily influenced by their culture, and living in opposition to what God wants and that's what we see here. We see Abraham's false neutrality. We see a certain kind of callousness. Do with her as you please, you know. And, and, and so Sarah does what with her as she pleases, and she beats her. The abuse of Hagar by Sarah, uh, which forces Hagar to flee, finds a strange parallel in the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But in this case, in Genesis 16, the roles are opposite. See, now we have, instead of the Egyptian beating the Israelites. Now we have Sarah, the Israelite, beating the Egyptian. And, you know, how the, the, how the webs just continue to weave. It's really, by the way, one of the things I kept thinking about when I wrote this is like, so is Moses writing this after they fled Egypt, and he's showing his people that they mistreated an Egyptian. That's really interesting, isn't it? So he's not innocent. The text doesn't suggest that Abraham's just the innocent bystander he would like to portray. In fact, there is an actual echo here that tells us this is bad what he's doing. It says here, Abraham hearkened to the voice of his wife. Now those words, Abraham hearkened to the voice of his wife, are almost identical to where Adam hearkens to the voice of Eve in Hebrew. And the idea here is not that it's bad that he listened to his wife. By all means, husbands should listen to their wives. But the idea here is that he no longer is listening to God. He's just simply trying to appease this woman, and he has no other way of processing the world around him. And so things go downhill. And in fact, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul tells us exactly uh, a few more things about what's going on for Abraham. When he says that Abraham is old and he's barren, and Paul says, what's going on here for Abraham is Abraham is trying to save himself. You know, it, the, the whole thing here is that Abraham looks at his body, he looks at his wife's body, he's like, I'm not going to get a family through her unless there's some kind of supernatural divine action. And I don't want to rely on a supernatural divine action that some son is born. So, and then he looks at Hagar, he's like, okay, I can do this myself. I don't need to rely on God. I can work this out myself. And so really what's going on here is at a deep and profound level, Abraham's decision to go along with the Hagar thing is really a deep level of unbelief, the same unbelief that Sarah had, that God could work supernaturally in the barrenness. And so they share that sin. Uh, and by the way, faith in God 
ultimately always comes back to that idea that God can work. God can work even when it seems like it's a closed universe, even when it seems like we don't know how this is possible. Faith is always about the idea that, you know what, there's more here. There's an openness here. Just because we see the circumstances like this, it doesn't mean that's the end of the game. Paul says the only way we can become right with God is through a divine supernatural grace in history. God must send us a baby supernaturally whose incarnation, atonement, resurrection, all that saves us, and there's no other way we can do it. There's nothing we can do. We cannot, I like it when, actually the Hebrew when, Her, uh, when um, Sarah says, I will make a family, it's I will build a family. We cannot build our own salvation. There's nothing we can do. We have to be open to the radical supernatural work of God, and there's nothing else we could do. So Abraham has the same sin of unbelief. And we see unbelief working itself out in these first three scenes. And everybody's life just blows up. Their situation becomes a rat's nest of dysfunction. It's like a therapist's dream to go in there. Probably their nightmare, actually. I don't know. But, I mean, you know, next on the Dr. Phil show, we have Abraham and his two wives. I mean, like, you know, it's just a big mess, right? And, that's the, and that is what the text wants us to know. Your unbelief in the power of God is not going to result in you flourishing as a human being. It won't go well for you. Unbelief actually, it shrinks our universe. It makes our options limited. It puts us underneath the barrenness of cultural identities that we can never attain to. It doesn't go well. And no one gets what they want. You know, Abraham's trying to appease his wife, and Sarah is furious with him. Sarah wants to get rid of her contempt, and then she inherits uh, Hagar's contempt. Hagar wants new status and the security within this family, and she's kicked out of the family. It doesn't happen the way they want. So this is the downward part of the narrative, but it doesn't end there. And by the way, this is the amazing thing about the Bible, is that when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, this is just super messed up. And right when you're like, what is going to happen? Suddenly, there's always God stepping in. Always God stepping in. And that's what happens. Uh, God steps in. And this leads us to the, the, the next scene. And the next scene, you know, it's really interesting because it involves Hagar, who now has to flee. And, uh, and she's going to meet a mysterious messenger. So what happens? Well, the outcome is bad for Abraham. It's bad for Sarah, but it's devastating for Hagar. Hagar was already in a bad situation. I mean, she was somebody's property, right? It was a terrible situation to be in. And now she is now a single mother who's pregnant, who doesn't have a home, who's kind of like a runaway slave, and she's in the middle of the wilderness. I mean, I'm not sure if there's anything else that could be wrong for her at this point. It's a very vulnerable place to be in. And the text tells us that she uh, had headed um, uh, into the wilderness and she found a spring there and she was by the spring on the way to Shur. So we actually know exactly where she was. Shur actually means um, the, the, the wall and it was this, um, this, this border. And um, apparently she, in a week, has covered 70 miles as a pregnant woman. Um, and she is heading straight to Egypt from where she's from, right? I mean where else is she going to go, right? I mean, at least they speak her language, though. May, you know, we don't know what she's going to do there. 
And, and when she's in this situation, it all gets turned around. The angel of the Lord found her. I love that expression, found her. That means that God was looking for her. It's not that God accidentally ran into her. God found her. He was looking for her. And how does God find her? Well, there's this mysterious character. The angel of the Lord is how God meets her. The angel of the Lord is used 67 times in the Old Testament. It speaks of a unique, mysterious messenger who speaks as God, identifies himself with God, exercises the responsibilities of God, and yet in certain ways disassociates from God. It's here in this text. In verse 10, I will multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered, speaking as God. But then in verse 11, the Lord has listened to your affliction, disassociated from God. Theologians call this a theophany. The angel of Yahweh is a visible, accessible manifestation of Yahweh himself. Some people even believe this is a Christophany. This is actually Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament. Whether you see it as a theophany or actually Jesus himself, either way, we know that this is a way in which God is now encountering Hagar in a visible way. She can now see him. God is now, by the way, every time God communicates with us, God always does it, John Calvin says, in baby talk. Your Bible, it's just baby talk. I mean, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So God puts it in a language we can understand when now God becomes visible in a way that she can see. Um, and this angel, by the way, <laughs> has a lot of things to say. This angel has a lot of things to say. First thing he says is, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Starts with a question. I always find it amazing that when the God of the universe who knows everything talks, typically starts with a question. Jesus is always asking questions. And I think to myself, I need to shut up and ask more questions. <laughs> There's something in there. But he starts with this question, and it's a question that gets immediately to the point because she answers and she answers where she's been, but she doesn't answer where she's going. In other words, she doesn't know where she's going. She says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So the second thing he tells her is something counterintuitive. What? Return to her? Return to this abuse? Return to this woman who just beat me? Sometimes God tells us to do things that are counterintuitive. She is to return to humble herself, put her under her mistress' hand. But then he assures her of something. I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. He goes on, you're going to bear a son. He's a wild donkey of a man. That's an incredible description, by the way. I'm not sure I'd put that on a resume. Wild, wild donkey, you know. <laughs> Anyways, um, but I love the description. But he's assuring her, this child you have is going to live. You won't lose the child. Um, he won't be under anyone else's thumb. For a servant, somebody who's a slave to hear that, that's amazing. And that he is going to number a multitude. She is going to be the mother of nations. By the way, this would be, in the ancient Near East, to have somebody tell you that you are going to be the mother of a nation would be like hearing that you're going to win the largest lottery ever. You couldn't imagine any greater riches and so sometimes God calls us to do things that are counterintuitive, but God is going to bless us in ways we can't imagine. And then fourth, he tells her something that actually 
is what she really is floored by. It's a simple phrase, the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord hears your misery. Not the Lord has heard of your affliction. Not that God was watching the news and he found out. One of the angels told him. The Lord hears your affliction directly. The thing that's amazing is that when she hears from this angel is her response. She could have been terrified that she had to go back to that family system that was so dysfunctional where she was beat. She could have been absolutely fixated that she just won the lottery and she's going to be the mother of a nation. But Hagar's response is one of amazement. She's beside herself that God has noticed her. There's a verse, verse 13. There's so many different ways it's translated. Uh, I, you know, the Hebrew is something like this. Have I seen behind the seer? It's a statement of wonder. It's a question. Kidner and Hamilton, other Hebrew scholars, translate it this way. Have I seen after the back parts of the one who sees everything? In Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God. And God says, no one can see my face and live. My glory is too powerful. But in my grace, I'm going to make a way for you to see me. And he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covers his eyes and God passes by and then it says, he pulls his hand out and Moses saw the back parts, the back of God. And I believe this is what it's being, this is what it's talking about here. See, she realizes that the angel of the Lord was a way in which she could encounter God's self visibly. And she could see God, the one who sees everything, and she knew that he saw her. There's some bad news in the idea that God sees everything. It's not necessarily good news. I mean, think about it. Like, it's a little bit creepy to think that somebody sees everything. Even the things we don't see. I hate it when someone's like, hey, dude, your tag's out. You're like, oh, yeah, all right, all right. You know, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm a performer. I don't like, you know, for my tag to be out, my zipper down, any of that stuff. I hate it, okay? If I'm in a room, I don't like people behind me. I want you in front. I want to be able to, you know. God sees everything. And that, that could be bad news if the one who sees everything has not created a way for you to be acceptable and received When God shows up in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, it's smoke and fire and the people tremble. We do not want to go near that God, the God who sees everything. But here's what's happened. Hagar, in a very rudimentary way, because the angel of the Lord has appeared to her, she understands the gospel. She understands that God, in his mercy, has met her. He's heard her cry, and he has come there. And he has made himself visible. He has encouraged her. And she's so amazed by this that she has seen the one who sees her that she doesn't want to forget it. We have no reason to believe she had anything other than her Egyptian past. But this, that she has discovered that this God who knows everything and sees everything has come down and made himself visible that she can know this God. 
She does not want to forget it, and she gives God a name. The only person in the Old Testament that gives God a name, she gives God a name, the God who sees me. She names the well, <laughs> Bir Lahai Roy, the well of the living one. Who's like, she's like naming, like, I do not want to forget that this God who sees everything sees me. He hears my cry and my affliction. He's made himself visible to me. He cares for me. I never want to forget this. It's changed her life. Before she was arrogant, she was clinging to her status as a pregnant woman, climbing her way up, trying to get away from the identity markers of barrenness within her culture. And now her life is transformed. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate angel of the Lord by which God comes close and he says, I see you. I hear you. I hear you directly. I hear what's going on at work. I hear what's going on in your family. I see it. I see your hidden thoughts. I know what's going on. I know that aging parent that you're taking care of and how hard that is. I know that child that's driving you crazy. I know your marriage problems. I know the dynamic. I know it exactly. I see it exactly. I know your groans. I see you. Even when you're muttering in your sleep and you don't hear it, I hear it. I am the God that sees you. And I know you. And I've drawn close to you in Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And if you just understood that, you wouldn't be so fixed and terrified by your fears. You wouldn't be so lost in the dreams of what our culture says are going to make you happy in somebody. Where are you at? Where are you at this morning? What did you walk in with? You know, God sees it. God loves you. Maybe you came in with some, maybe it wasn't dramatic. Maybe you've just kind of been plodding through life. Maybe listlessly, just kind of dissatisfied. It's like your life lacks any kind of substantial direction. God sees that. So, what are we going to do? Are we going to be a barren Sarah? Struggling in order to do what our society says, with the assumption that we're in a closed system, are we going to be Hagar, who knows that God sees and God can change anything, but ultimately, we have the comfort of knowing we are never alone. We have a God who is drawn near to us, and he sees us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story, which reminds us that faith is not just thinking up impossible things, but Lord, that faith is having the courage and joy to believe that you have made yourself seen and known in Jesus Christ, and because of that, we are loved and embraced, because he has made a way for us to be seen and known and to see and know the one who sees all things. We praise you for this news, and now as we continue to worship, we ask you to remind us that we live our lives 
in your presence, that you hear us, that you see us, and you receive these praises.